0: Deep in the wild flatwood hammocks, somewhere in central Florida, a column of U.S. Army soldiers, more than 100 strong, marches two by two through the slash pines and palmettos. Amid the troops, a six-pounder cannon trundles along, pulled by a team of horses. At the head of the column, Major Francis Langhorne Dade of Virginia, leads his troops on horseback. Peering deep into the forest between the thin pines, he scans for any sign of Seminole Scouts, but sees nothing. His breath turns to steam in the cold winter air as he breathes a sigh of relief and releases some of the tension he's been carrying for days. It is Major Dade's final breath. The loud crack of a single musket rings out from the column's left. And a moment later, as the men in the column watch their commander fall from his saddle, a barrage of gunfire from hundreds of rifles explodes from the low undergrowth of the palms. Fully half of the army's soldiers are felled in an instant. And in the sudden chaos, the remainder scramble to form up and return fire. Amidst the ear ringing hail of musket shot and choking gun smoke, the six pounder is brought to bear and begins firing into the trees. For a moment, the attackers melt away into the woods and the surviving troops set about hastily constructing rudimentary fortifications out of pine logs. But before their barrier is even knee high, the attack resumes and the Americans outmatched Exposed and surrounded by nearly 200 Seminole warriors, continue to fall. As the sun climbs in the cold morning sky, their numbers slowly dwindle until there is no one left. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 11, Lights Out. When the United States took control of Florida in 1819, it took it upon itself to secure the busy shipping channels off the territory's coast and transform the Gulf Stream into a safer and more navigable route than it had ever been before. Navy bases were built, such as the one at Key West, and a string of lighthouses was constructed. For the first time, the treacherous brink of the Florida Reef was marked at night by this series of beacons, allowing ships to keep a safe distance as they rounded the Florida Keys. One such lighthouse was built at Cape Florida in 1825, at the actual cape on Key Biscayne's southern tip. Standing 65 feet tall, with brick walls 4 feet thick at the base, it marked the terminus of the barrier islands and the shallow sandbars at the mouth of Biscayne Bay. The government appointed Navy Captain John Debose to be the light's first keeper. It was a drastic transition for Debose, the son of a plantation family in the Carolinas, who at 46 years old, had spent the last several years of his career far away, fighting Barbary pirates on the coast of North Africa. He was leaving a life at sea and coming ashore, with the promise of a quiet life where he and his wife, Margaret, could raise their three children. The DuBose family, along with their two slaves, were deposited on the remote beach of Key Biscayne on December 13, 1825. There was no one to greet them, except the flock of long-legged birds, the lighthouse that would be DuBose's charge, and a brand new two-story brick house. On December 17, four days after his arrival, DuBose lit the lamps in the tower, and the Cape Florida light came to life, piercing the pristine blackness of the night amid the cool winter breeze and breaking waves. It was DuBose's first official act as keeper of the Cape Florida light, yet it earned him a reprimand as soon as his superiors learned the news. He had lit the light without properly coordinating the date, and thus began a fraught decade-long career in lighthouse keeping. The DuBose family quickly learned that the isolation at Cape Florida was extreme. They lived like castaways, Encountering not a single other soul for days and days at a time. Shortly after their arrival, DuBose wrote a letter to his superiors, saying, The situation of this light is far different from that of any other on the American coast. There is no one so far removed from a settler's part of the country and where a keeper has to send so far for his supplies. DuBose struggled to get the assistance he needed from the government and quickly gained a reputation as a nuisance to his superiors, who would often take weeks to send him requested provisions. As the years passed, it became apparent that the lighthouse system, though an improvement, struggled to provide the services that had been hoped for. The lights were not high enough, or powerful enough, to be visible from beyond the rocks of the coral reef some four miles off the coast, and it soon became apparent that the contractors who had built the towers had done a great deal of shoddy construction. Other towers in the Keys collapsed in hurricanes or began sinking into the sand, and DuBose reported his lighthouse developing a noticeable lean, along with poor workmanship of the keeper's house. Nevertheless, the family persevered, the first Americans to settle permanently at Cape Florida. They got to know the local Bahamian settlers and eventually built a second home on the mainland near today's Coconut Grove. They were there when Richard Fitzpatrick, the wrecking mogul from Key West, arrived in 1830 to buy up the land and develop his plantation on the Miami River. They weathered a hurricane in 1835 whose powerful storm surge actually created Virginia Key, carving it off of Miami Beach. They entertained the great ornithologist John James Audubon, who documented and popularized the amazing variety of birds in South Florida, and they hosted the horticulturalist Henry Perrine, who was sent by the U.S. government to begin the cultivation of useful tropical plants. But while DuBose lived out these years in far-flung isolation, far to the north, the frontier of white settlement that had slowly been creeping south was spilling into northern Florida. Poor white settlers who were locked out of the landowning class of the cities and towns of the American South had been striking out into the frontier for decades, carving their way into the wild plains and forests and clearing isolated homesteads for themselves deep in the wild backwoods. These intrepid southern frontiersmen, known as Crackers, were among those who sent slaving parties into Spanish Florida and helped precipitate the First Seminole War. When Florida was turned over to the United States at the end of that conflict, they were given free reign in the new American territory, and the Florida crackers were soon pushing into the interior. But of course, there were already people living in Florida. In order to make room for settlement, The Seminoles had been relocated to their reservation in the center of the peninsula, but it wasn't long at all before the white man was at their doorstep yet again. The debate over how the young United States should deal with the native population had been ongoing since the nation's inception. Many of the founding fathers saw the native peoples as great friends and allies, sovereign nations in their own right, who should be afforded all the same diplomatic trappings extended to England or France. Others, however, saw them as a nuisance, second-class citizens who stood foolishly in defiance of the inevitable. To grant them sovereignty over land that was an American possession, it was argued, was a fundamental violation of constitutional duty, amounting to no less than high treason. To them... The duty of Americans was to the glory of America alone. In 1828, General Andrew Jackson, the old enemy of the Seminoles, was elected President of the United States, bringing a cloud of foreboding to Native Americans across the nation. A supporter of Indian removal, Jackson viewed the relocation of America's natives to the unsettled lands west of the Mississippi as an act of mercy the gift of a second chance and the opportunity to avoid the inevitable annihilation they faced if they stayed in their homes. In 1830, foreboding turned to despair when Congress passed the Indian Removal Act and President Jackson signed it into law. The process of Indian removal began immediately. One by one, treaties were negotiated with the great Indian nations. The Choctaw, Cherokee, Creek, And Chickasaw each reached agreements, often under suspicious circumstances, to give up their native lands and move west. They gathered their things and by the thousands marched towards the mighty Mississippi. But whatever promises the United States made to guarantee a safe and comfortable passage were abandoned. Whole communities of natives marched for months through the wilderness, carrying their lives on their backs in an appalling journey that claimed the lives of thousands. The Trail of Tears, as the journey has come to be known, is today considered a terrible stain on America's human rights record. In 1832, the Americans opened negotiations with the Seminoles, the fifth of the so-called Five Civilized Tribes, and negotiated the Treaty of Payne's Landing. The Seminoles agreed to move west if the land was found to be suitable. A handful of chiefs were dispatched to the Oklahoma Territory, where they spent several months before signing a statement asserting that they found the land acceptable. But when they returned, they claimed, and evidence supports, that they had been coerced into accepting the land, and that the rest of the Seminoles should decide for themselves. Nevertheless, the United States considered the treaty binding, The original agreement had given the Seminoles three years to move west. After two years had passed, and it was becoming apparent that the Seminoles had no intention of going anywhere, the U.S. began to turn up the pressure. A United States agent was sent to persuade the Seminoles to move, and additional troops were sent to reinforce fortresses in central Florida. President Jackson had a letter read aloud to the Seminoles explaining that, if they refused to move voluntarily— They would be removed by force. The situation grew more tense over the summer and fall of 1835. Sporadic attacks were reported, both by white settlers and by the Seminoles. The open country was becoming a dangerous place. The writing on the wall was clear war was imminent. In December 1835, two companies of American troops set out from Fort Brook in modern-day Tampa to reinforce Fort King in today's Ocala. They marched into the wilderness under the leadership of Major Dade, a well-respected officer who had overseen several similar marches through Florida. The Seminoles shadowed his troops for days, and when they finally attacked, they did so suddenly and without mercy. The entire company was obliterated only two of the 110 Americans survived, crawling back to Fort Brook several days later bearing tales of their slaughter. The Dade Massacre was the first salvo of open warfare. The Seminoles were not going to take it anymore. If it was war the U.S. wanted, then it was war they would get. Throughout the peninsula, the Seminoles were united. The gloves were off, and it was time to send a message. Meanwhile, down in Cape Florida, the small communities centered around Richard Fitzpatrick's plantations were living out a peaceful existence. In addition to his investments on Biscayne Bay, the land that Fitzpatrick had bought on the New River, further north, had been developed into a citrus grove. The most prominent member of the New River settlement was William Cooley a former soldier who had come to Florida during the War of 1812 and subsequently stayed. On the new river, Cooley had taken up manufacture of arrowroot, or Kunti as it was known by the Seminoles, the same small cycad that the Tequesta had cultivated for thousands of years. Cooley had set up a Kunti mill and became quite prosperous selling his refined Kunti flour to the local Seminoles and shipping it in bulk to other markets via Key West. When Fitzpatrick came to the area to start up his plantation, he used his political sway to appoint Cooley Justice of the Peace, making him responsible for local law enforcement. The success of Cooley's mill brought him to the other nearby communities frequently, and he became a familiar and respected face in the Cape Florida settlement Indian Key and Key West. On January 3rd, 1836, After several days of New Year's celebrations had wound down, Cooley led most of the New River Settlement's able-bodied men on a large wrecking contract to free a beach ship several miles up the coast. News of the Dade Massacre only six days earlier had not yet reached them, and none considered it problematic to leave the settlement undefended. The following day, a group of 15 to 20 Seminoles entered the settlement and invaded Cooley's home. They scalped the children's tutor, shot and killed Cooley's wife, daughter, and infant child, and beat his son to death. They then looted the home for valuables and left the settlement. In an instant, the little community's peaceful world was shattered. There were Seminoles everywhere. They had always been friendly, but now the settlers realized how exposed they were. Though the attackers had not hurt anyone else, the settlers fled for their lives. The wife and children of the Scalp Tutor, eyewitnesses to the massacre, fled on foot immediately, without taking even a moment to collect any belongings. Bolting through the dense underbrush towards Cape Florida, they arrived at the Miami River settlement the next day, exhausted and with their clothes in tatters, and warned of the terrible danger they were all in. The shocking news threw the peaceful Miami River settlement into disarray. They abandoned the mainland, and over the following days, the combined 200 or so Bahamians, Americans, and enslaved people of the Biscayne Bay communities descended on Key Biscayne, crowding around John DuBose's lighthouse at Cape Florida. But over the following days, the indefensibility of the small compound became apparent. Soon, Word arrived of the Dade Massacre up north. The Seminoles were on the warpath, and with the specter of an army of murderous natives bearing down on them, they hastily piled into a handful of boats and set sail for the sanctuary of Indian Key. With the threat of violence at his doorstep, lighthouse keeper John Debose moved his family to Key West. But with the Cape Florida light now dark, his superiors requested he return to his post. DuBose at first refused, but eventually agreed to return with armed guards. He spent the next several months taking frequent trips to Key West and making frequent complaints to his superiors. War was raging across the peninsula, and no place seemed safe. In the historical record, DuBose's reputation takes a nosedive here for our primary understanding of his situation comes from correspondence between his superiors, who considered him a coward. But DuBose's fears were not entirely unfounded. From across the bay on the shores of the mainland, the Seminoles could see the Cape Florida light, its unnatural glow beaming into the night, all alone in the darkness, just a stone's throw away. On July 18, 1836, DuBose took a short leave of absence, sailing away to Key West to celebrate his 57th birthday with his family. He left John Thompson as acting keeper, along with his black assistant Aaron Carter. It was a fortuitous trip for DuBose, because five days later, the Seminoles attacked. According to Thompson, quote, On the 23rd of July, about 4 p.m., as I was going from the kitchen to the dwelling house, I discovered a large body of Indians within 20 yards of me. He yelled to Carter that they were under attack, and the two men sprinted to the lighthouse, barely getting the door closed behind them as the Seminole attackers opened fire and put holes in Thompson's shirt. They barricaded themselves in the lighthouse, where a rifle and a keg of gunpowder had been readied for just such an event. The two men were completely surrounded, without anyone to help them for dozens of miles around the abandoned beaches of Cape Florida. They were trapped, and under siege, and throughout the evening Thompson moved from window to window, exchanging gunfire with the Seminoles until dark. Inside, several barrels full of lantern oil, fuel for the light, had been hit by musket fire, spilling kerosene across the floor. When night fell, the Seminoles renewed their attack, setting fire to the wooden door of the lighthouse. Within moments, the kerosene-soaked floor was ignited, instantly filling the tower with flames and billowing smoke. Thompson and Carter carried the rifle and gunpowder to the top of the tower. But with fresh air being sucked into the compromised doorway, the tower rapidly turned into a blast furnace. The wooden stairway burst into flames, and the terrible scorching heat of the roaring inferno "'forced Thompson and Carter from the safety of the tower's interior. "'They scrambled onto the narrow catwalk outside the light, "'where they were met with a hail of gunfire from the Seminoles below. "'They laid down on the walkway, "'trying desperately to stay out of sight of the Seminoles "'while their clothes and skin were scorched by the heat rushing out of the tower. "'Twisting in agony, Carter was hit several times by the Seminoles.' "'and musket fire shattered both of Thompson's feet. "'The lantern now was full of flames,' recounted Thompson, "'and lamps and glasses bursting and flying in all directions, "'my clothing on fire, and to move from the place where I was "'would be instant death from their rifles. "'My flesh was roasting, and to put an end to my horrible suffering, "'I got up and threw the keg of gunpowder down the scuttle. "'Instantly it exploded,' and shook the tower from top to the bottom. It had not the desired effect of blowing me into eternity, but it threw down the stairs and all the wooden work near the top of the house. Carter said he was wounded, which was the last word he spoke. With all hope lost, Thompson had resolved to end his intolerable suffering by blowing the tower to smithereens, a fateful decision that proved to be his salvation. The collapsing staircase smothered the fire, bringing immediate relief to his torment and allowing him to scramble to safety. Quote, the Indians, thinking me dead, left the lighthouse and set fire to the dwelling house, kitchen, and other outhouses, and began to carry their plunder to the beach. End quote. By dawn, the Seminoles had melted back into the sand dunes and sea grape brush, leaving nothing but the quiet sound of the waves. Carter was dead, and Thompson was badly wounded. As the sun broke over the horizon, a transport ship, which had been passing off Cape Florida when the explosion went off, approached the lighthouse and was hailed by Thompson. A rope was thrown up and rigged to get him down from the tower, and the shell-shocked man was taken away to the safety of Key West. The attack on the lighthouse at Cape Florida caught everyone off guard. The U.S. military had not supposed the Seminoles would be so brazen as to attack a harmless navigational marker. Across the whole of the United States, the war in Florida had gripped the nation. The Seminoles controlled all of South Florida, with only a handful of strongholds in the Keys remaining in American control. Refugees flooded onto Jacob Hausman's tiny island fiefdom at Indian Key, and the residents prepared their defenses. The second Seminole War was just getting started, and for the people of South Florida, no place was safe.) <coughs>